Right, so let nobody tell you, Mark, that we just have idiots from Oldham on this podcast who can't string four words together or they string four words together and they call that a sentence. We've got political royalty once again. We've had Alistair Campbell on this series and now we are joined by none other than Order! The Speaker of the House of Commons, Mark. That is a great guest. Sir Lindsay Hoyle, welcome to Out of Your League. Look, we can't... We can't keep saying Sir Lindsay. So can we go with, I don't know, what was the school nickname? Was it Hoyley? Hoyley? What was it at school? Come on, there must be something. When you call Lindsay, it's always Lindsay, yeah, because, you know, uh, the trouble is you always wait for the girl coming in the room with a woman now. (laughs) (laughs) Look, it's so good to get you on. So thank you so much for your time. I've got to start, really, because I know you've been a a busy bunny, as you always uh, are at this sort of time of year. But you've had the, the G7 Speakers Summit, which was in Chorley your home constituency. You were born in Adlington, just south of Chorley. Please, 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 Lindsay, tell me that it's true that you gave the likes of Nancy Pelosi and all these political icons that have come over from the world Warrington wool shirts. Absolutely correct. Um, I'm going to say I thought it's a great opportunity. You know, we've got to sell the game. So here we are, you know, uh, the French president speaker... He said, I play rugby. I said, well, this is real rugby. So, you know, he, he got the shirt. They were all delighted. They thought it was fantastic. So they all had the name on and number seven. So all the speakers have got the shirts. Alfie Bull was singing on the Saturday night. And Alfie Bull even got the Warrington shirt as well. He said, I follow Fleetwood. I said, well, you don't follow rugby league. But there we are. So we... We, we, we got them all there, and it was a great opportunity just to mention the great game of rugby league. Give them part of that by wearing a Warrington shirt. And I said to Speaker Pelosi, he's got an American company. Oh, look at Hoover. What more do you want? You know, I said, this is how much we sell the game. So once he tried to explain that this is, this is a bit like American football without all the padding and helmets, she really got into it. Brilliant. I love it. I, lo- I love the idea. I mean, I, I really hope that shirt made it back to Washington as well, that she did, it wasn't just sort of launched in some bin at the back. I hope to see her wearing that in uh, in the White House at some stage. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I think it's going to be a good I'd imagine that like, an on- wear your own clothes day at the White House and Nancy walking around in a, in a wolf top with seven on the back. <laughs> quite, quite an image. Yeah, it'd be quite good. You know, I could see it now being the scrum arm, passing passing the documents down the line. You know, we get some real good trade in there. But but I think it was important because I think this was about me selling Chorley, but it was also about selling Lancashire and the North. And part of that is the great game of rugby league. Great opportunity. Now I've got to thank the Warrington Club. They provided them. They wanted to make sure that we were selling the product. This is a great game we've got. We should be a worldwide game. We've got to grow the game. And I thought this is a great opportunity to get it to some important people. Love it. I love, just love the idea of Biden getting one one day as well. We'll work on that one, won't we? Uh, I mean, look, we're going to talk a bit of politics. We're going to talk a bit of rugby league, of course, Lindsay. But give us the juiciest, the sexiest things to come out of the, the G7 Speakers Summit. Give us, give us something which is not in the news. Come on, give us something juicy from behind the scenes. What would I say is, first of all, we, 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 we started off with this great event. It was about, as I say, showcasing artillery band from Bolton Blake when they first arrived. You know, I get the train up to the conference. These people, these guys, fly in with their own jets. You know, the government provided jets for them. 
know, having to find somewhere to park them up. We had to park them up at Wharton at Richera Space. You know, this just isn't the normal everyday speakers conference. So these jets coming in, you know, obviously we haven't got the runway at Chalder, but it was the nearest place to park them up. From there, we, we quite rightly were giving them a taste of Langshire, lots of local people there, getting them involved into it. So that was the start of Friday. Saturday came, um, we got we got them to the conference we did, the first part, and, and the fact that we'd arranged for a Spitfire to fly over three times, came very low, and then the red arrow just came on the back of it, absolutely oh, blow, the speaker blows his mind away. He said, how on earth did you manage to achieve this? I said, I have no friends left. I've called every favourite I've ever had. And, of course, from there, <laughs> we've got the kids involved. And it's about education, about bringing the community together. And Charlie turned out, Charlie really turned out for it. You know, to have this huge cavalcade of being led in by the police, all the roads being closed, all coming into Ashley Park was quite moving. But to actually see all the people coming out, filling the park up, waiting and watching the events, you know, and cheering. And they all got flags. So that was really good. But of course, we go into the afternoon session, we get through that. I take them to St. Lawrence's Church. And St. Lawrence's Church in the centre of Charlie have got this great connection to the Americans. And what we did at the church, the Stal the Standish family have got a crypt in this church. And Mal Standish was part of the Pilgrim Fathers. Every child in America is told about Mal Standish and how he set up the new world how we was part of setting up New England. And wherever, whichever school you go to in America, you learn about Mal Standish. And I told Speaker Pelosi, I said, this is where he prayed. This is the crit that the family had. This is the pew. She was completely blown away. Up on the wall above is an American flag that was given to the church in 1942 by the Lieutenant Colonel when he left. This flag has flown over Washington Hall in Charlotte and presented it. And I passed a message out saying, could the speaker provide them with a new American flag? And she brought this flag that was in a box. And basically, it's not just any old stars and stripes. This is the flag that Joe Biden made his inaugural speech under when he spoke to Congress and everybody from the White House. So that now, that flag is now in St. Lawrence's Church there. So from there, we have the evening event. We've got, I've got to say, it was a real taste of Lancashire. You know, we gave the and base frames, the cheese flute, souffle. And of course, then we had to have the loin of beef. People don't know this, but a loin of beef knighted in Chorley. That's why it's called sirloin. James I came to Chorley. They slaughtered the white apple. And he tasted it, he said, this is the best beef I've ever got. We got the sword out and knighted it sirloin. So we had the chur on display as well. We brought that to him. And then the big event came. We got into the dinner and we got Alfie Bolt there. He came, he's knocking the numbers out, blowing the Italian speaker away because his first three songs were Italian songs and he just knocked them over. Because I think they're a bit cynical and they think there's only Italians can sing. Alfie Moore took the room completely. And he said, I've just got to let you know, he said, next year I'm off to Vegas. I've got a retainer out in Vegas. I'm going to be singing out there. So everybody said, well, we want something different, something new. So he decided to do an Elvis number. And we got Nancy Pelosi up dancing. And she was dancing to Elvis. And, uh, <laughs> to, yes. to Alfie Moore singing Elvis, you know. And, and suspicious minds. I thought that had to be the song for politicians. So there she was, dancing <laughs> to suspicious minds. Very accurate. 
Very, very accurate. This is what you don't get in the Daily Mail. These are the stories we want, Lindsay. Love it. Absolutely love it. And a history lesson. I mean, look, some might have thought you had been the mayor of Chorley at one stage in your career. And we will get on to that. Very good. You know I was. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Um, Look, what what everyone wants to know, because, look, I'm a a southern fairy, Lindsay. We're going to get on like a house on fire because I went to Harrow School and had Winston Churchill's bedroom. And Mark Flanagan's from the opposite end of the spectrum. A a good old Oldham Labour boy through and through. You're, You're more likely to have a pint with him than you are with me. But... I'm going to be kidnapping you at some stage because I live in London. So when you're down there and you're doing your your day job, I'm going to take you out for a pint. That's a threat. Um, But look, geography wise, you're from Adlington, grew up there, which is, I think, a few miles just south of Chorley. So my geography says that's closer to Wigan than it is to Warrington, Lindsay. So how have you sinned against not becoming a, a Wigan Warriors fan? And, and the truth is, I do like a pie, so I can't even use that as a, as a, as a reason not to support Wigan. <laughs> what, what, what I would say is that I, my father was the MP at Warrington, um, so I went to watch Warrington with him, and then he became chairman of the club at Warrington, uh, took the team to Wembley. So I've had this natural affinity to watch Warrington rather than Wigan. Um, so, you know, I'm, I've got to say, all the glory days were... With Warrington, I've seen, we've always been the Neely Club, you know, when Alfie Langer, all those people, you know, we can go back way before that when I was watching Warrington. The fact is that I've stuck with them. Uh, I always will stick with them. It's a bit like my football credentials. I watch Bolton Wanderers and I've had the highs, not many of them, but I've certainly had lots of lows. So what it is, it's about if you've got an affinity and you do support someone, don't change because there's success somewhere else. And that's what it's about. And it's been about that with me. So it's it's really been a great experience to be part of Warrington. My father's still president of Warrington uh, Rugby Club. And what a great club it is. And it is about that. It's been being involved, getting to know everybody behind the scenes. Uh, and it's the friendship there. You know, so it, it's something special um, relationship that, as a family, we have with the Warrington Club. Um, but I'm going to say, it's a great game as well. And what are your fondest memories of Warrington? You, you kind of touched on a few few there with Alfie Langer and probably some of the hair days back, back when. What, what were your fondest memories, favourite players? Was it the Wilderspool days? Is it, is it more Halliwell Jones? Uh, I, I've got to say, the Wilderspool days were some great days. Uh, GB with Alfie Langer, what a pair they were enforcers on the pitch. But if I take it even before that, the fact that Kevin Tamate, when Steve Roach played, we lost in the semi-final at Main Road, you know, to, you know, I couldn't believe it when a drop goal came from virtually the halfway line and completely changed the game that, that Warrington was dominated. You know, Les Boyd out there, when they had the zoo as the front row, you know, it, they, they were different days and it was a different style of rugby. But, but you know, even then it was that excitement of what the club brought to us. You know, it's uh, Bob Ettles was still around. You know, there's some really good players in that club, slightly different type of rugby that was being played. But I've got to say, you, you know, nobody pushed Warrington round. They, they were a club that could enforce on the field. Um, and, and it went on, you know, and then we saw the likes of Jonathan Davis going to witness, ended up at Warrington. You know, there was real excitement in rugby league. And then, we, of course, what really changed it was Wigan going full-time. Um, once they went full-time as a professional club, they then stole a march on every other club in rugby league. And that's why they dominated it for so long. And, of course, we went through the Wilderspool days, tough days, where 
coaches, you know, my father was chairman then, so we went through it where what coach will be here for a short period, they changed coaches, things weren't quite working out. Langer went to, wanted to play in the state of origin, which they went on to win. Um, you know, it, it, it was quite an amazing period. And of course, the player level descended as financial, like everything in rugby league. It was tight financial reins had to be placed on the club. So we didn't have the superstars that we had, but we got through it. And then the great opportunity came of having a new ground. And I've got to say, it changed the fortunes of Warrington. Not only did they have good people on the board, you know, Simon Moran, absolutely fantastic. You know, the fact that Simon was there and they decided, and in fairness to Simon, he wanted to make things happen at Warrington. We got the new ground, rebuilt the team, and of course, we got to go off to Wembley and win the Cup. And, you know, those... It was that turnaround of actually winning something that really meant so much to me. You know, fantastic team, fantastic fantastic atmosphere around it. It really was a good family club as well. So, you know, from that day, I don't think Warrington's ever looked back. Of course, we've still got one thing to win. You know, we've got to make sure that we win at Old Trafford. I think that would really be on the icing on the cake for me as somebody who supports Warrington. And this, as I always say, this is our season, but it may well have to wait till next season. You just know what's going It's been said before, Lindsay, that one. It's been said Absolutely. before. Absolutely. I always say, well, it'll be, it will be our season one day. <laughs> Look, it's, I think there's a really interesting time for rugby league at the moment, Lindsay, because, you know, there's this talk of expansion, there's this talk of uh, modernisation. Um, and look, everyone will always look back at the glory days through through rose-tinted glasses. What what are your views um on the, the the future of rugby league, and I guess the current impact that it still has on communities in the northwest, because you're very much involved in that area still. I, I think I think we're always at the crossroads in rugby league. It comes along every so often. You know, when when I was chairman at, at uh, Chorley, that we were seeing the the deal being done with Sky. People could understand why I didn't support the deal because I knew there was a disconnect between lower clubs and, and, and the top clubs. And that's the problem. You've got to have a structure that joins, whether it's amateur, right through to Super League. It's this crossroads of unity. You've got to bring it together. It's all got to be linked. We've got to show someone who's in the amateur game. There is a career structure here, but there's also, whether whether it's working turn or borrowing furnace, a club like Barrow has had such a rich, rich history. It holds them, you know. They've got to be able to be progress. They've got to be able to be able to achieve Super League status. There has to be up and down. We've got to get the excitement back in the game. We don't want to decide in the first 10 games who's going down and who's going to win everything. So I think you've got to keep something exciting about the game. We've got to look at the game. We've got to work with the game. And in the end, you've got to have the World Cup. That's why I was so, so positive about the World Cup. But positive now. If you've not got a World Cup and you've not got a world stage to play on, you really do struggle with just club rugby. And that's why Australia becomes more isolated. We become more isolated as well. The whole thing doesn't happen. You've got to have this platform that really develops the game. It's got to be an international game with international fixtures that makes the real difference. And the other thing is, I'll be quite honest, we've got some great talent coming from overseas. But we mustn't let that be at the expense of bringing good players through. Because the danger is players 
play with her in the academy. They're discarded because there's not enough places. They've gone inside and look at the place from overseas. We've got to keep bringing that young talent through. If we're going to be on the international stage, we've got to have those players playing for us, playing in Super League. We've got to bring them through. We've got to give them real opportunities. Player welfare matters. So we've got to get that right as well. We've got to watch we don't become too sterile, too clinical in what the game is. You know, we don't want to go back to the days where it was all, you know, big gym, sorting somebody out, knocking everybody off. But also there's a danger that a prop forward is as fast as a wing. You know, we've got to get some excitement where people can still score tries and it's not this clinical. Let's pass back, let's drive forward. You know, we've got to get it back so the crowd's on its feet again. They want to see tries being scored via the winger, going the length of track. We see it, but we don't see it enough. But also it's about the dominance as well of forwards. You know, some of it, one, one minute it's just shoulder charge, next it's not. It's the confusion of the rules as well. We, if we have rules, they've got to be very clear and very clinical in the way that we approach it. The one thing about rugby union, the rules can, anybody can decide how the rules work. You can almost pick who you want to win because the rules are so open to interpretation. We don't want rules that are open to interpretation. We want the crowd to be able to understand the rules. We want them to be able to make the decision alongside the ref of the day. And it's difficult to be a ref, I get that. It's an impossible position. I wouldn't like to do it. It's bad enough doing it in the Irish Commons. So God knows what it's like on the field. But, you know, it, 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 it is about that. It's a game I love. It's a sport I love. But I just don't want to see it wither on the vine. We're always been an exciting game, but we just don't tell enough people or sell the game enough. And we've got to start doing that. But we've got to make sure unification, amateur, Super League, all the way through, it's got to be connected. If we don't connect, we will lose out. And people, as we know, you know, I always say to people, if all two don't want to sponsor Rugby League, but they don't want to do Rugby Union, why don't we all of us say we're going to hand in all two contracts? I bet they want to come and talk about sponsorship. We've got our top 100 companies invested in our game. We've got to get people to realise that we have financial influence as well. You know, the fact is we're not trendy for the Royal Bank of Scotland or whatever it is. Well, we should be. We're a better game. We're a better sport. Nothing wrong with rugby union, but rugby leagues are game. Love that, Mark. I mean, look, as far as I'm aware, Mark, there is a position at Super League entitled mm. Chief Executive, still available long term. So Lindsay, I mean, mm. Super League would pay Sir Lindsay Hoyle a lot more than he gets paid to sit around on those fancy green leather benches, wouldn't they? I'd pay him that, yeah. Plenty. <laughs> I'm not giving up the day job just yet. Let me say that now. You know, it, it, look, rugby matters, and rugby league is so important. It's all part of where, of where we are in the north. But as we know, we've always tried to break out. We always tried to be maybe too ambitious. You know, the Canadian experience left a bitter taste. Lots of players were left without contract. It didn't work out. Will we have been better invested in, say, Coventry, a major city? You know, I, I just wonder at times. We, we try to run before we can walk in our expansion. I always believe that we'd be better off with two clubs in London so you can build up some kind of rivalry between north and south of the river, trying to get people involved in that. I always say, if you can sit somebody down to watch five games of rugby league, they'll want to go and watch it themselves in the future. But it's just managing to achieve. And that's what's so important. Yeah, and I think what Lindsay touched on with the World Cup is so key to the expansion of the game. We, we talk about growing it in different different areas and, and away from the heartlands. And I think, you know, the schedule was touching on places like Coventry and London and Newcastle. And I think 
putting games on there, showing an amazing spectacle, would have been an organic way of, of growing the game. Just naturally, people getting out of the house, going to the stadium, getting involved, getting excited by the game, and then kind of following it through by playing and more participation and, and more eyes on, on the matches on a weekend. So I think there's still something with the World Cup being next year, if we can really capitalise on that. Um, I, I think it's a great opportunity for us. Lindsay, I love your journey as as well. So I just want to talk about, you know, I love we love stories on this podcast and we've had we've heard so many, I mean, even just not not comparisons with you and Alistair Campbell, but it's just interesting and obviously your passion for the game comes across so so much. But just rewinding all the way back to before becoming an MP, you ran a, a textile and a screen printing firm. And it's been quite a journey, hasn't it? Fast forwarding up to, to being knighted for, for parliamentary and political services in in 2018. How did this all start for you, this this political career? Well, I think it's like everything, you know, um, doors open, doors close. But in my case, my father was heavily into politics. He was into the trade union movement. He became the MP uh, back, way back in 1974 when he got elected in Nelson and Cone. He'd actually fought his first election in 1964. So as a child, and a very, very young child, I'm going to say then, I was delivering leaflets. So in a sense, I was born into a political family. It grew and it developed. And it was about that relationship. But like everything, you never think it's going to be a future. So I was the youngest councillor to be elected, went on to Chollyborough Council. And being on there was everything to me because you can make a difference for people. I was the youngest councillor ever elected. I wanted to try and make a difference. And from there, I held every position right through. I was deputy leader. I was mayor of Chorley. And people came to me uh, in 1996 and said, look, there's a general election coming. Why don't you stand for Chorley? Why can't we have a local person standing in Chorley? Somebody who represents Chorley, but actually lives here, understands it. And nothing against other people who've been the MP, but they didn't come from Chorley, you know, the exception of one. But others moved into the area and you never have that affinity. I believe the affinity comes from somebody who actually lives there. And that's the one thing they could never take away from it. I was born and brought up in the Charlie area. I always lived there, always worked there. So to me, to be approached in 1997, um, to be elected, and I, I've got to say, um, I was very successful. We got elected, but I don't think anybody could lose in 1997, let's be honest. You know, seats were falling all over the country. Uh, I, I became the first Labour MP for 18 years. I, I came into Parliament, um, and, and, and the, one of the first things I did was join the rugby league group. You know, it mattered to me. I wanted to bring that <laughs> experience that I had along the way. I wanted to share that and share my enthusiasm. And from there, the one thing I wanted to do was represent the people of Charlotte. Uh, I gave everything up to become a full-time MP. That's what really mattered. I promised I would do that, and I did do that. I think the, there's a couple of things in that. I think my wife was pleased I packed up with the rugby league 12 months earlier, the fact that she no longer had to worry about the business, uh, you know, we could we could move on, and I did. And, and from there, I concentrate on my politics. As I say, my father then went into the House of Lords, and he was approached by the Warrington Club to become chair. Um, and, and, and the rest, in that sense, became history for him, where he went to that, and, and, and he continued with the club, where I continued on my politics in this side of the house, and, and he sat on the red benches in the other. Um, and the one thing that I've always tried to do is speak and passionately about my constituency, looking after my constituency, and slowly but surely, you know, things happen. Um, 
Sometimes you have to vote against government, which isn't popular. I did that. I always tried to do the right things by the people of Jolly. 2010, for the first time ever, the deputy speakers were going to be elected by all the members of Parliament. I stood for that. I became the chair of Ways and Means. Speaker Burke, who had just been elected, I was his immediate de deputy. And for 10 years, I was his apprentice. And when he decided he was going, I thought, this is my day. This is my opportunity. So in 2019, the opportunity came. Do I, do I stand for speaker, which I did? And I've got to say, thankfully, people elected me. And I'm here since. And the one thing it does allow me to do is he banging on the drum about rugby league. Obviously, I was speaking to my counterparts in Australia and New Zealand about how important the World Cup is. I was speaking with rugby league as well, trying to ensure that we could keep the doors open, keeping the financial support going. You know, when Secretary of State Oliver Dowden was there, the constant message from me was, look after rugby league. What are you doing for rugby league? And I've been doing that all the way through. We've now got a new Secretary of State. So the first thing I said to her, welcome into the job. Don't forget, you trained at your nursing post in Warrington. So I want to know that you're going to look after rugby league as well. You know, and that's the kind of thing that I can do is have influence and try and share that influence. Lindsay, you, you talked there about banging on about rugby league. And I, that's, that's great for me as a, as a rugby league fan and former player. I remember reading an article a couple of years ago when um, it was it was just following Kevin. It was last year. Kevin Sinfield's amazing efforts to raise money for Rob Beryl, and they were talking about the huge disparity in in honours and New Year's honours uh, in rugby league and rugby union. And there was a period in the early two thousands when uh, during five years there was one rugby league player had received um, an honour. I think it was an MBE. In that same period, fifty two rugby union players have received honours. And then there's never been a rugby league player, coach or administrator given a knighthood. And there's obviously been several. I'm quite interested to know from your point of view, how our game is received down there and, and what their perception is of it. And how, how is it there's such a disparity between how individuals are recognised in one sport as opposed to the other? You're, you're absolutely right. And you always look at the top of the tree, that's cricket. Um, what I would say is they always do out of honours, especially knighthoods. Um, my view that, uh, you know, uh, Alex Murphy richly deserved that honour and we all work together to make sure things like that happen. And I always support the honest rugby league players. I do believe Kevin Simfield with what he did, not only on the field, but it's what he's done off the field to support and highlight motor neuron, raising all that money, supporting Rob Burris all the way through. And I believe he should have been knighted. I even recalled him to Kevin Simfield in the in the chamber and the Prime Minister repeated thing in the egg of the night. I was putting the marker down. He did get an honour, but I agree with you entirely. We've got to push for recognition. Okay, we may not have as many people playing grassroots sports and rugby, and that's something that we've also got to address. That has evaporated compared to the high numbers we used to have in the past. We've got to re-establish and get and get that grassroots rugby league going again. And we've got to expand the game. And we've also, as you're coming around to the question you've asked me, of course, I will always be pushing to make sure more people are on the rugby league. They do a great job. They do a great service. It's a family sport. Health and well-being, what's been done within rugby league. Highlighting the issues as well. You know, mental health is a major problem for people who's played sport when they finish. It's also about putting that support in. And it's about recognising the people who've done that. And I look, I'll be quite honest with you. I want to see somebody night in rugby league. I want to see us get the honours that we deserve, just like other sports. 
um, some are more favoured. And one of us says, is the snob really? Yeah, I think there really is. They'll deny it, but my view is we have that. But the one thing we have, we've got access by myself, we've got access by the old badge of rugby league group. We'll be there and we'll be pushing and supporting people from rugby league to be recognised for the service that they've given. Yeah. Um, look, Lindsay, I've been asked by a, a, a few former rugby league players to ask you this question because I know you're heavily involved um, with the GMB, uh, the trade union. And, and, and of course... In 2014, there was a, gr a group of players who wanted to independently set up uh, a players' association, and that was opposed. Um, what are the GMB doing these days? You know, six, seven years on from then, apart from fighting fires, to look after the the welfare of of former players, current players, and and the future of those players who put their body on the line for the game. What well, what I would say is it's about. What are the players doing to make sure the union is representing them? I'm not the shop steward for the players either, but you're up, it's a great question. What I would say I just say, I saw Rob Berra today, who's been in Parliament, and I've got to say, there's a bit of somebody who, quite rightly, this is a champion of rugby league. He's suffering an illness, and he's still coming here today, and he's profiling, and that's what matters. And that just shows you what a family rugby league is. And it's the people around him, isn't it? Kevin Sinfield, you know, people like that, the lead players, the lead club. It's the family that we've got. How do we get the family to be represented by the union? And I've got to say, I, I would always say, look, the players themselves, if they join the union, they should be asking what are they getting for, the, for their subs. And that's what they're paying. They're paying to be represented. And if they're not getting represented, they should be getting the GMB in to say, actually, letting us down. The muscle of the GMB should be there to support the players. If they've got a case going to court, that's the kind of thing that you want your union to pay for, is that representation, that legal advice. And that's what they've got to do. Um, and if it's not happening, it should happen. And I've got to say, we need to get on with it to make sure it does. You know, as I say, players join the union, they should be asking, what am I getting for this? How are you rewarding me? How are you supporting me? But I think if you have a major injury or something major goes wrong, that's when you need the union. You don't need fine words and sympathy. You want action. And the action should come by being a member of that trade union. So what I would say is, if it's not happening, it should be. And I really do believe if there's a disconnect, what we should be doing is maybe using the group within Parliament to actually broker or bring together if there's something missing. Look, Lindsay, there's so much I want to ask you. I mean, so much Mark wants to ask you as well, and Wilkin would as well, but he's not here. Uh, and I know we've only got you for, we haven't got you for too long. So you, you referred to it earlier about, you know, being speaker and made that comparison of being a, a rugby league referee. And it's always entertaining. I mean, look, even if you're not interested in politics, just to stick on PMQs and have a look at Earth, what's going on, especially the, the modern age that we're in now, it's always fascinating. What's the most ridiculous things that have happened and you've had to be in, in the middle of it as a speaker since you took over from Burko? That, that's a very good question. I, I think I think the hard part. I think the, the, the most ridiculous difficult thing is that the house has worked in a certain way for 750 years and had 24 hours in which to change how the house works. Uh, you know, we've done the same thing since medieval times and suddenly we've got a pandemic. How do we ensure that the government bring legislation forward but making sure that's still scrutinised in the middle of a pandemic. So I'm going to say that's been the real difficult thing. I've been running a chamber with nobody in there, uh, and people are on teams. I'd never, ever have thought that was possible or it could ever be done. 
And the fact that MPs always have to walk through a lobby, give the name in to show they voted, and that we can actually prove that you can rip, not, it seems pretty obvious to most people, that you can actually do it through technology to ensure they can vote remotely as well. So those were the big things that we, we really, really did. I think, I think the most ridiculous thing was when we brought all the MPs back and said they had to go through the lobby. And, and, and the length of the walkway was probably half a mile of MPs coming up to vote. You know, that was absolutely ridiculous. And that's why we brought in fast voting system. We, 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 we were the pass, the House of Commons, you touch the pass on and you've logged your vote. And that seems to me technology that works, it's smart, and those are the things that we need to go forward. So I've got to say it's been a really difficult period. You know, slightly in the sense I got elected and a couple of days later we're into a general election. I go into a general election, uh, my wife said, you don't look well at all, I'm bringing the doctor. I go to the doctors, doctor said, I'm just calling an ambulance, we've got to get you to A&E. You are not well at all, you are really ill, even though I felt perfect. Find out I'm a type one diabetic at my age. How did that happen? I do not know. Oh, you wow. know so, I became, so I became a type one diabetic in the middle of a general election where they said we're going to keep you in hospital for a week. I said that can't happen. Uh, I'm in election, so I have to take you know four days out. They got me in to the hospital when the NHS is needed. It really does turn up drums. So I've got to say they saved my life. They put me back. Um, and, and I got on with that general election. I came back. Brexit was meant to be the big issue. The world was talking about Brexit, and within a couple of months, it's all about a pandemic. So I've had, all the way through, there's something been going on. So I've never had a settled period. We're slowly coming back to normality, where we're getting people back in the house, the chambers full, the excitement of the chambers coming back. It's that electrification. And, you know, you get the humour in the chamber, um, and you get the difficulties of being in the chamber. So I've got to say, I'm hoping that we're back to normal times, that we have legislation moving forward that can be scrutinised properly. And I want to show tolerance and respect within that chamber. What I don't want to is get into the situation we're in previously. It's about, we don't have to agree with each other, but there is a way of showing disagreement and not bawling and shouting somebody down. That is not the way forward. It's not a good look for Parliament. And also staff here ought to feel that the service to give to this house is respected as well. So I've gone out of my way to make sure... I meet with staff, I meet with MP staff, I also meet with staff of the Commons, because they're the people that's kept the show on the road. They've ensured that MPs have managed to have a parliament that's sat all the way through. We didn't lose any days, we've done it, we've worked well, but it's the teams around us that's made a real difference. So yeah, there's been fun along the way, there's been difficulties along the way, but hopefully, as I say, this is now back to normality. One thing that's always frustrated me when I watch PMQs is, um, either one of two things when you know someone's barefaced lying for and then when they're being asked a question or completely avoiding a, a question that they're being asked by the other side how, how is it for you when you're in that position where you know people are ignoring the the, the, the pertinent questions being answered that's been asked and then that kind of the, the dishonesty as well because it must be pretty um pretty clear to see from 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 your side of things well first of all there's an assumption they know the answer yeah, <laughs> that's the key, isn't it? You know, they get a question. The, the idea is he's avoided or he's not answered it sometimes because they don't know the answer. Yeah. These aren't questions that are pre prepared. So, you know, there is that assumption. What I would say is people assume the line. That then becomes a political interpretation for me. 
I'm meant to be neutral, so that's why it puts me in an impossible position. So somebody may not give a straight answer. Um, and therefore, if I was said that's that's a lie, that's not the case, I'd then taken a political decision. And what we can't afford to do is politicise somebody who's meant to be neutral. It's a bit like a referee having to interpret something that's, that is an interpretation that isn't a fact on the spur of the moment. And a lot of that has to be done. So what I would say is that I haven't got the power to be able to say, sorry, that's a lie. What we can do is ensure that people, if something isn't quite good, that someone may put it on the record that they believed it was that, so you can get that on the record. Also, there are other ways of dealing with it. And so, therefore, it is for other MPs who quite rightly may have answered, asked the question, who don't feel they've got the answer or they were could have been misled on the answer, um, therefore, there is a route for them to take. And we have to go through the procedures that the House have put in place to ensure it can be called out. Yeah, it's a difficult one for you, isn't it? Because John Burko, I remember, you know, was abused really for, for for speaking out about things, Lindsay, which he was passionate about and things he believed in. So I guess the cynics and uh, not people listening necessarily to this podcast, but might say, well, hold on. Why is Hoyle allowed to champion rugby league and all the things that, that tickles his fancy in Chorley and Lancashire? Well, in, Ver- in Vernus, it's a bit like Charlie A and E, and those are the things that matter to me. And it's got—it's not going to make a, a major political difference. It's not a heavyweight political policy. Of course, the A and E is, but that's for me locally in Charlie. But when we come to rugby, it's a sport. Um, you know, Theresa May loved cricket. You know, so we all had it. John Burke would only speak about Arsenal. Um, I don't think he's speaking much about Arsenal this year. But you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> It is about that, you know. And the fact is that what I don't want to do is show my political views. I gave an assurance to the House, and that's where it's elected. We're elected to be neutral. Of course, I've got my private opinions, and of course, I've got my views, but I cannot show them on the major political events that will come before the House or major political policies. That is not for me to do. The one thing is what people say, well, do share the responsibility. In the end, if it's a draw, it comes down to my vote. That's why it's better to be neutral. You know, people ask me when I stop a speaker, "Did are you for or against Brexit? I said, I'm not going to say. Uh, you know, in fairness, I said, I don't want to be ruled by saying one thing or the other. And I think that's the danger. You get typecast on where you are. And, and they will always say, well, he's leaning that way or he's leaning that way because that's how he voted. I did vote in a referendum. I did vote with the people of Charlotte, and that's what matters. Mm. You talked about it there, Lindsay, before, and you, you know I think part of your remit has been to clamp down on the rowdiness in the comments. Because look, I mean, you, you, Hoyle can give us a, an order, an order, quite one like that order, but you can also give us a give us a real one. Give us give us your most disciplinarian order for us on the podcast. Order, order. You know we can do a little bit. <laughs> it's just genuinely yes. about. That's what know. we wanted. <clears throat> And, and, and it's that kind of not having to try and use it all the time. I don't want to be like that. I actually see the quote people. What, what I'll generally do is look at them, you know, and I know where the problems are coming. And I'll look up and I'll just, I'll just wave my finger and just like calm down. And they all round up, you know, and I'll follow them round the chamber. And the boo boys, I've got to tell you, who sit in certain seats and wound up by the whips, shout the leader of the opposition down, and shout the prime minister down. I know who they are. And the first thing I do, in fairness to Helen, the Speaker's Secretary, 
find out where they're sitting, tell me where they are, and I'm ready. And somebody said, you know, it was me, you couldn't see me. No, but I recognise your voice. Brilliant. You, you need what, a little like, naughty step or a naughty corner, I think. Just slide <laughs> <laughs> you, you go and stand over there. Face the yeah, wall. Get on that naughty step, absolutely. You yeah, see, yeah. in the end, I don't, I don't want to throw people out. I don't want to be like that. I just want to work with the house. I've got to let it enjoy itself, and I've got to let some energy out. Keep the house simmering, but don't let it boil over. If you lose it, we've got problems. So I've got to say, you know, to suspend somebody takes the salary off them. People forget that. If you throw them out and name them, they're straight away they lose the pay. So it could be for a week, it could be for six weeks. That's their income, that's their family that gets affected. So I think there's a bit both ways. I don't want to do it, and I'm sure the MP doesn't want to lose the money either. So I think it's better to have a good working relationship. Once I give them that stir, and once I give them a bit of a, a nod, I'm watching them. It's better they go quiet and it saves me having a problem later. <laughs> I love it. You know what? There's so many good clips on YouTube of you where, you know, you, you gave us that order like you just did a, a few minutes ago. And then it's, this is a, it's an absolute disgrace. This is a disgrace. There's some brilliant, brilliant bits out there. And look, Lindsay, be honest. There must be times where, you know, the Chorley Labourite in you, you, you sat there and you're thinking, I'm, I'm listening to all these and I include myself in this, these posh twats, these Eton and Harrow boys who are shouting things from the from the other side. And you've got to you've got to sit there with a smile on your face when actually you don't want to agree with them. And maybe they're the ones who are likely to be thrown out first. I'm gonna say don't forget they sit on all sides of the house. That's the one we got there. Yeah. You know, don't get too carried away by that one. Um, you, you know, look, I treat everybody equally. I treat them with respect. I expect them to respect the chair. And I think it's about working together. And, and you know, we've just, got to, we've just got to work on it. You know, it matters to me. And, of course, I'm very proud. I'm proud to have a Lancashire accent. You know, I'm the probably first Lancastrian. I'm the 158th speaker to sit in that chair. And I'll be the first from Lancashire. You know, the last great speaker in the North was Betty Boothroyd. You know, so the two of us, she did Yorkshire, I'm doing Lancashire. And, and, and here's the best of it, you know, in Burners to Baroness Boothroyd. She turns up in the office and she'll say to the front desk, where is he? Oh, he's in his office. Tell him I want dinner with him tonight at 7.30. And she'll sit me down and say, no, lovey, I just want to know why have you done this? And you should be doing it this way. So I still get a good lecture off her. She's brilliant, you know. She's a, an absolute icon of speakers. So it's great to be able to get that advice. Here she is, 90-odd-year-old, coming down to the office, Give me a good lecture. And that's what it's about. You know, it's about building this friendship, this warmth and being able to talk to people and taking good advice. I'm going to say she's a great friend and she's a great asset to the House of Lords. So things can work out. And of course, she was from Dewsbury, so she gave him a good rubber leak down. <laughs> Look, last couple of, uh, of quick fires for you because we're not going to keep you much longer but the, the questions that everybody wants to know the answer to if you're stuck in a lift and you're stuck in a lift for a long time Lindsay we're talking two three hours here would you rather be stuck in that lift with Boris or Sakir I think I should be on my own <laughs> neutral again <laughs> very good very very good yeah. and uh, and of course I mean this is just from my silly little brain who'd win in a fight so Lindsay Hoyle or John Burkett I, I, I don't think we need a jury to judge that one <laughs> yes that's it 
<laughs> Lindsay, it's been so good to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. And it's great to just have a different flavor and a different voice um, to speak to the people that listen to this. Um, who's going to win? Who's going to win the grand final in October? Well, hopefully, I've got to say, my head will probably say St. Anne's is going to be there. My heart tells me that Warrington can do it. So I've got to go with my heart at this stage. You know, it. And, and it, I come back round. If it's not this season, it'll be next season. But I'm still <laughs> confident that we can do it. You know, we've got a great team there. If, when Warrington are on form, they can beat anybody. But you're always up against the might of St. Helens. Whatever happens, they're just a machine. The problem is we need somebody to pull the plug out. And look, I tell you really? what, Mark, we were so lucky to get an, an order of that calibre from Sir Lindsay Hall because that's going to be his trademark even going forward. You know, fast forward five years when he's on Strictly Come Dancing and he's going to be, and I'm a celebrity and all these things that he's got. To, he's, he's saying no already to that. You have to say no now, Lindsay. You wait till the checks come in in 10 years' time. <laughs> we'll see We'll see you with Oti Mabuse on BBC One. Don't ask Catherine if she thinks of the check. That won't be the answer. I would end up having to do it. But no, it's down to me. It's definitely a no. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant all right Lindsay thank you so much uh, enjoy the grand final let's see if Warrington could do the business for you and um, great to have your, your insight and your passion for, for rugby league so thanks so much for coming on out of your league no really enjoyed it thanks for having me on we'll do it again sometime thanks Dave yeah, Bye. that'd be great. There we go. That is Sir Lindsay Hoyle, uh, Speaker of the House of Commons. Don't forget, you can download uh, all the episodes gone by from all the years gone by, Mark, at Out of Your RL on Twitter. Give us a little follow and we'll see you next week with John Wilkin. I promise the wanker will be back. Thank you very much. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>